The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Later in the podcast, we pay tribute to the enormously influential writer and curator and great Picasso biographer, John Richardson, who recently passed away. But first this week, David Bailey. Tashin has just published its David Bailey Sumo, a vast 50 by 70 centimetre, 440 page book following two years of research into Bailey's personal archives. It captures 60 years of his work from the classic 1960s box of pinups, featuring images of swinging London, to more recent photographs of the key figures of our present age. Among the subjects are everyone from Nelson Mandela and Queen Elizabeth II to Brigitte Bardot and Kate Moss. Numerous artists feature, from Andy Warhol to Salvador Dali, Francis Bacon and Damien Hirst, who wrote the book's foreword. Hirst says that Bailey is the master of his art and he's created a mind-blowing visual language. One artist that's absent is Picasso, and you'll find out why in a moment. I went to Bailey's central London studio to discuss the sumo and much, much more. David, let's begin by talking about the sumo book that you've done with Tashin. It's an enormous thing. What does it include? It includes, uh, it's portraiture, it's just portraiture, it's not all my photography, it's just one section, it's just portraits of kind of um, talented people, I guess. Do you remember a moment when you thought, photography is for me? You'd obviously got this Rolodex camera, which quite, you know, again, very young. Yeah, actually it was before that, it was a roll-up camera, and... Because I used to take pictures with my mother's brownie, you know, little, the old story. I mean, it sounds corny, but it's true. And unfortunately, it was stolen. But the uh, in the in the Air Force National Service, so I was sent to Malaya and Singapore. And Singapore was a tax free company, so you buy a camera. So I bought a second hand roll up for peanuts because you know, a packet of cigarettes to get your camera. <clears throat> and then I bought a, a Canon that was a copy of a Leica. So I had two cameras. I've still got my Chinese pawn tickets from from that period where I used to pawn them to get film and then get it back to pay for the film. <laughs> it's quite funny. Did you? What was that compulsion to make photographs? Because it was—it's not an obvious thing. It wasn't a, a regular hobby in the same way it is today. Well, I saw some films too when I was a kid of uh, Walt Disney made a film about uh, animals. Uh, it was—it was. It was um, you know, just first of those, a bit like what's he called? The bloke who does it, uh, David Attenborough. Yeah, a bit like David Attenborough. I like the photography in that, and then I saw different things. So it was before I went in the Air Force. I saw it, but once I was in the Air Force and could afford a camera, I mean, he only only took one frame on a roll, but it was it sort of it paid off. It was good for me being in Singapore, really, because it gave me a different outlook. Did you immediately feel that portraiture was something you were particularly drawn to, or were you quite experimental at that stage? No, no, it wasn't. When I came out, people complained that I was all over the place. They say, one art director said, oh, you'll never make it because you don't concentrate on one subject. I thought, well, I'd rather, you know, photograph a mushroom if I feel like it, or whatever I want to photograph. It seems silly to stick to one thing, so I never really bothered what people said. And And... When it came to making portraiture, you're famous for an informal style which somehow captures personalities very instantly. Can you say how much of that was a sort of 
about intention and how much of it was a was about the moment, as it were? Well, I don't know really. I think to me, it's it's just common sense. <laughs> I think he looks good like that, so I do him like that, or she looks good like that, so I do her like that. It was just, and to simplify it, I mean, I don't see why I need a palm tree with. Kate Moss, because, you know, why does Kate Moss need a palm tree in the background? She's, she can do it. She's great by herself. I mean, so occasionally Michael Caine used an unlit cigarette, but I quite simplified things. I think that's what people liked, getting right kind of closer as well. Yeah. And it, one of the things about those great photographs in the box of pinups is that they feel like a conversation, it feels like you are engaging with them, not just as a photographer, but as a person. Can you tell me something about the atmosphere of those shoots? And, you know, how much time were you sort of uh, engaging in repartee and how much of it was photography? Well, I talk to people probably... I'd like to talk to people for at least an hour before I photograph them. So I get to know I'm photographing. I don't never understand people who just photograph somebody and never speak to them because I don't understand what they're doing. It's as simple as that, really, just to get, get to know the person you're... It's, 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 it's sort of just instinctive, really. Was it quite a radical gesture in, in its time to, to make the box of pinups? Because photography, uh, now, we, feel, we think about photography as an art form. But even in the 60s, uh, it was very much more a form of journalism. No, it, only, only, in, only in, the, in America it was art right from the word go, more or less, uh, they were very arty, the Americans. They appreciated photography more than the English did. In fact, journalists used to call photographers their monkeys, didn't they? And uh, they were monkeys, by the way, because <laughs> they just did what they were told. But by the time I got there in the 60s, it all started to change. It was really the first, it was a kind of revolution, working-class revolution, really, because I think we made it because there were so many of us. And they just, I don't know... They were so they were very snobbish in the sixties. Everybody was snobbish. If you had a bad accent, it was difficult to get a job at Vogue. I tell you that. <laughs> and you were part of this Black Trinity, as it was called. Oh, that was Parkinson or Beaton or somebody who said that. Yeah. Because it, did you feel a sort of resistance from the establishment photographers to a certain degree? No, not really. Everyone was quite nice. They were mostly uh, very middle class. It's a bit like the movies. If you look at those movies on from the 40s and, and 50s and even the 60s everybody playing cockneys or working class people were from the middle class so you can tell by their accent they're not cockneys at all they're just very posh people saying alright mate like that <laughs> <laughs> and that all changed in the end and along came Michael Caine and changed everything so if you want a cockney you get a cockney Photography was also, was a subject as well as your medium, wasn't it? Because Lord Snowden was in the box of pinups, for instance. I'm not sure he was a lord then. I think it was just before he was a lord, so he didn't know that he was, he was a poncy lord. But he uh, he uh, he was all right. It was good fun, Snowden. Yeah, he was. He was. I used to call him Snowdrop to his face, which he didn't seem to mind, which I quite liked. Did, was there a sense of competition between you and the other photographers in that period? Not the good ones, no. No, I mean, people used to say to me, oh, you're only going to last, uh, it'll be over in three months' time, or, you know, it won't last. Um, this beatnik thing, I remember a photographer saying to me, this beat thing won't last, this was about 1960. 
it'd be over in a couple of years. I, oh, I didn't know I was beating Nick. <laughs> <laughs> when you came to choose the images for the box of pinups, how did you go about doing that? Oh, they were just. Uh, people always ask this question. It's just. It's just like everything, like this book. I mean, I could do this book three times over with different images or different people even. It's just um, instinctive. It's, it's not difficult. Again, it's common sense or uncommon sense, as my wife calls it. But still, there were sort of uh, elements of it that caused great consternation at the time, weren't there? Because the, the presence of the craze in Oh, yeah, well, it. we couldn't publish it in America because Snowden objected and the hairdresser, Vidal Sassoon, he thought he looked like a gangster and Snowden didn't want to be in a book with uh, the craze, I think. Well, it was all right. In America, you couldn't publish in those days if you didn't get a signature. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because it sh- it, in a way, it exposes those the sort of sensitivities of that time in a way that... The, and, and the sort of class structures at that time that, that now seems quite an alien place now, to Now us. I think it's a bit difficult for people to understand what it was like. It's a bit like India's caste system. I mean, I remember there was a a beautiful model that <laughs> I used to work for different you know for the Daily Express and people like that and I said to the editor at Vogue English Vogue uh, why don't we use her and they said well, have you heard her accent and it was the same accent as me <laughs> because she had a sort of working class I said well what's that got to do with anything they said but listen to her accent we can't possibly have her in Vogue <laughs> it's sort of crazy I'd like to talk a bit about the art world at that time because we think of the 90s art world with Damien and Tracy as this revolutionary moment, but actually in the 60s, artists were right at the heart of Swinging London, weren't they? And you photographed them in that time. Well, it depends what you call artists. <laughs> well, I'm thinking Hockney and... I mean, you photographed Pauline Boaty, the, the sort of oh, tragic yeah. uh, artist who died so young. You know. Yeah, I didn't really choose artists or musicians. It just happened. It was just people that were interesting, really. There's only one, two, two men in there from television, that's Morecambe and Wise, and I photographed them because I thought they were two of the funniest people I've ever met. But apart from that, there's no television people in my book, in the box of pinups. Right. In fact, there's, no, there's none in, in uh, the sumo either. What do you think lies behind that? You're, you're... It's kind of snobbery in a way. <laughs> because it's all changed now, because... Everyone goes home and watches Netflix, which are all more or less the same because they're all made by the same movie students that go to film school and they, they all look a bit alike. So, I mean, I understand they bought 100 Years of Solitude. I hope they don't screw that up because that's my favourite book. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Garcia Marquez, Marquez spent his whole life denying people the rights to, <laughs> yeah. to, to have it filmed and now suddenly there it's going to be a film. He's not long dead and it's, suddenly it's going to be a film. Uh, no, well, I tried to do the film once with uh, Jerzy Sadidski who did uh, Being There and we went to see him or the, the, my producer did. He said, no, I never allow one of my books to be made into a film and then they made it with Peter Sellers. It was a great film. Can we talk about Andy Warhol because he was yeah. he was another artist you photographed? Well, I was sort of friends with Andy, but it's difficult to be friends or photographing me because he sort of seemed to disappear. He didn't really, he didn't really. Uh, he was a strange guy. You'd be driving along with him in sunny turn and say, "Yeah, baby, have you ever wondered what happened to the people that made buttons?" And you think, oh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why now? You know, driving in the middle of nowhere. 
uh, and he, he always came out with unexpected things but he, he was quite clever he was really a vieur himself he really liked to watch rather than be watched but it, what's interesting about the photograph of him is it seems to me that there's a, the Warhol was famously, you know, blank in so many people's experiences of him. But you seem to have captured a, a spark in him, which I'm not sure that many photographs actually did. Well, I think we did the first selfie because he said to me, I won't do the film unless we go to bed together. And it was kind of a joke on me too, I suppose. And I said, well, OK, we do all the interviews in bed together. So we, that's why we did an interview in bed. And while we were doing it, I got the Nikon or whatever it was and did a picture of us in bed so it's the first selfie as far as I know <laughs> that's in the sumo by the way did you think of yourself as an artist as much as a photographer was there a concept then that photographers were artists no I mean uh, most artists are not artists and most photographers are not photographers so it's a, it's a, it's lucky dip in a way isn't it so it's not true I mean uh, uh, if, you're, if you're an artist, no matter what you do, whether you're a photographer or a painter or... I mean, I do... I made all my money from directing commercials, not from... Uh, I was with Ridley for about 10 years, I think, 15 years, but Ridley Scott. But I think uh, I made money not from photography, I made it from directing commercials. That suggests that there was very little market for photographs, at least until re- until recently, well, it's very recent that photography has paid for itself because I'm always I'm always broke because you need a lot of staff to be a photographer. I mean, a lot. I've only got five or six, but it's still a lot of money going out every week, and, so, and you need space. You know, where do you put where do you put the national portrait? All the all the framed pictures. You don't want to sling them away, and so you have to buy an a warehouse to pay for it the warehouse doesn't cost much it's it's the rates that cost the money <laughs> but what about printing because it, one of the things i'm really struck by is that photographers have very different relationships with the physical process of making a, a photograph don mccullin who's at Tate britain at the moment has he's almost uh, obsessive about the quality of his prints how important to you is the process of making prints oh no it's well i still use film i mean i only use uh digital when I do uh, street photography you know like if it's the east end or you know people it's 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 easier because you can just shoot it 85% of what I do is film so we care a lot about the prints do you enjoy that process of making the prints that physical process because I know it's almost a sort of fetishistic thing that some photographers printing it does it gets boring now I can see why Don likes it because he's always out in the rain he'd love to get back into the dark room (laughs) because he won't get wet but the uh, I think you have to know about it rather than do it and what about the sumo because it's it's a it's a very different kind of publication to your average book isn't it well not really I've done about 45 books I mean not self-published or properly published and uh, it's just you just have to think a bit bigger <laughs> a lot bigger and have some muscles really to lift the bloody thing and does it does it really make you think about the quality of the original negs and and how you you know because obviously these are vast images in this thing you know no the quality has always been good I've always Lieberman always used to say if you've got the quality right you're 50% there I think people forget that. It's good to get the quality if you can. That's why I never use an iPhone. 
that's it. I mean, obviously, the, you know, the world around us, people are constantly taking photographs, but it's purely in a kind of digital medium. The, the film is rarer and rarer. Do, how do you respond to... Have you, I'm like, as you say, you never use an iPhone, but do you, you say 95% of the photography that you do is, is on film. How do you feel about the whole process of making digital imagery? I think in the end it's the image that counts. But it's also... A, it's much harder on film. You've got to know what you're doing. And still cameras... Uh, film cameras they have a personality which digital doesn't have digital is just a computer with a lens stuck on the front of it whereas if you use a Rolleiflex it gives you a different attitude to using a 5.4 or a 10.8 so you have to rethink the way you see things it it makes you think it improves your seeing do you go into every shoot with all of those options available to you in a sense yeah and it drives my assistants crazy because I say I think we do 10.8 and they are Christ then we, it's, now it's difficult to get, you know, it's difficult to get film, so you have to always look ahead. Like, I'm doing Polaroid, negative Polaroids at the moment, and it's a nightmare of getting the film from America. Even the Polaroid was one of my, one of my favourite films. I always used to take it on trips. I used to get stopped at customs because they thought the processed powder was Coke. <laughs> <laughs> and when you've got a reputation? <laughs> well, I didn't have a reputation. <laughs> Um, the sumo obviously began these books began with a helmet newton helmet, yeah that's edition. 20 years ago it seems like last week yeah i remember saying to helmet in the 70s we were sort of in paris and i said why don't you just get a coffee table and turn it into a book so uh, i mean i don't know if that resonated in him later but it was something i actually said and did you when when the idea was proposed to you that you did a sumo were you instantly excited by the idea no I wasn't I mean I love Tashin I know Tashin I met him years ago in Cologne and uh, I said mm, a bit big and I was worried about the reproduction then I thought about it and my assistant said to me oh, why don't you do a sumo and I thought oh shit I do a sumo so I can't lift it, but I can look at it. <laughs> <laughs> it's in fact sitting on a stand close to us where we are. So you can leaf through it, can't you? Is it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Certain satisfaction in going through a career. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful thing. It's, I mean, I'm really flattered they asked me to do it. Talking about flattering and, you know, uh, photographers being given big gigs, as it were, there seems to me to be a bit of a shift at the moment in the sense that Don McCullen is at Tate Britain and you and Gagosian is showing your work. Art galleries across the board seem to be adopting all sorts of photography into the midst of the art world. How do you feel about that and, and, and the idea of photography getting its fair dues, as it were? Well, I think it's progress in a way. It's, uh, I don't think it's got anything to do with art. The art market's got nothing to do with art anyway. It's to do with money. But the... Uh, I think photography, money-wise, for galleries, it's cheaper. To bring over a Picasso, you have to pay the insurance. To bring over a Don McCullen, it's much cheaper. So the, the insurance won, you know, if, they, if we want to ship stuff to New York, it's cheaper to do. Prints, and particularly since the 80s, late 80s and 90s, have got gargantuan. Mm. And art photography was always associated with large print formats. How do you feel about scale and the, the importance of scale to, to the power of an image? Well, I like it. People are paying now proper prices for stuff. Uh, so I don't have to do commercials to, 
to get some bread. But the, uh, I think it's a natural program. I mean, photography's kind of become a kind of folk art almost with lots of people. It's a kind of folk art of England, really. And America and France. I mean, they love it more in France. We were a bit behind in, in photography in England because even in the 60s, you went to a photography show of amateurs and they had puppies in slippers and windmills, whereas you saw it in France and they had sort of naked women. You saw it in America and they had old dilapidated houses. <laughs> <laughs> can, you, can you tell me about who the sort of early influence, photographic influence. I mean, you talked about film being a massive influence. Yeah, about- that was, because when I was a kid, we used to go to... Because I lived through the Blitz in London, and we used to go to the cinema. I mean, I was seven and a half when the war ended. And we used to go to the cinema, because it was cheaper than putting a shilling in the in the gas meter to stay warm. And so we went. To, we used to have dinner at the cinema, my sister and my mother and me and uh, bread and jam sandwiches with some orange juice and go and see a film and every night I used to see five or six films a week and it was those seeing those images more than seeing the work of photographers in the paper for instance that, that prompted a, a real desire to pick up the camera yeah no I think film played a big part Hollywood more than more than people always say it was the new wave the but uh, it wasn't because the new wave was the same in still photography it was in movie photography because you know Truffaut doing swinging the camera that way and that way without a cut wasn't artistically adventurous it was just cheaper <laughs> <laughs> so it goes back to money in a way it's very expensive doing photography it's much cheaper to be a painter I know paint's quite expensive but uh, photography's really expensive if you do film I mean so it puts your prices much higher than people because they're so shocked and the art directors hate it because they want to see the picture straight away. What about other forms of art and, and their influence on you? Did you look to, you know, you're, you're famously a, a portraitist. Did you look to painted portraiture in any way? Not uh, really, no. I looked at Picasso a lot because Picasso was my biggest influence. My Jewish mate, I, he taught, t- turned me on to Picasso, so that changed everything. When I was about 16, he said, uh, you punk, look at Picasso. And he said... Uh, bicycle wheel doesn't have to be round and that's stuck in my memory I thought bicycle wheel is sort of another way of breaking the rules Can you pinpoint any particular works of his that you or particular periods of his work like for instance cubism or, or you know. he, he ruined me really for art because I didn't want to look at anybody else <laughs> why don't we look at that? somebody else when Picasso probably did it anyway or if he didn't do it he went round to their studio and copied it but he copied it better than they'd done it so he was he was my hero in a way uh, that's why I never wanted to photograph him because I thought, supposing I walk into his, his studio and he farts, it was completely <laughs> ruin everything for me. Because <laughs> I had a hero like I, I learned because I saw so many films. I knew Hitchcock and and uh, John Huston. I knew Hitchcock because I was born a street away from him in in Leighton, and he's uh, it, sort of a. I love John. He was a genius. I think really genius at filmmaking. But it ruins your image of somebody when you know them too well. The thing is that you've met so many famous people and so many yeah. great talents. So, I mean, they always say never meet your heroes. But I suppose if you're, if you're on their level, if you're also somebody who's... Well, you never think you're on their level, because that would be pretty conceited. <laughs> <laughs> if you did think it, I'd keep it stormy if I was you. <laughs> 
who of all the people you photographed in a way was the most impressive and the most uh, did you enjoy meeting the most oh lots of them it's, it's, it's difficult to pick out one they're all you know to be in the position they've got to and then to photograph them they've, they've already done it they've, they've sort of established themselves in a way so in a way I'm winning if you photograph just somebody I mean people say well it's just somebody and it's easy to photograph a friend but it's, it's harder to photograph her. Uh, say, if you didn't know Mick and he came into the studio, people would probably be breathless, or the Queen even. You'd have to keep your, you have to keep your feet on the ground. Did you get any sense of wariness ever from your sitters? No, I'm very quick. I'm not very good, but I'm very quick. <laughs> so I've got the edge on most people. I mean, I don't like having my portrait taken because people take so long. They fart us about with lights and Polaroids and you think, oh my God, just take a picture. Just take a picture. David Bailey, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're easy. <laughs> Better than the last one I was chucked out of the studio. <laughs> <laughs> The David Bailey Sumo comes in various editions. The collector's edition is limited to 2,700 copies and costs £2,250. And there are four art editions of 75 copies each, with separate prints signed by Bailey. The edition with the print of John Lennon and Paul McCartney from 1965 is currently at 11,250, and those with Gene Shrimpton, Mick Jagger and Andy Warhol currently cost 9,000. Bailey's exhibition, The 60s, is on at the Gagosian Gallery in Davis Street in London until the 30th of March. We'll be back paying tribute to John Richardson after this. Many artists draw on memories of childhood for inspiration in their work, but the Chinese painter Ling Feng Mian had perhaps more cause to do so than most. In a career marked by tragedy, much of his work was destroyed, first by the Japanese in the 1937 to 1945 conflict and then during the Cultural Revolution. So it's no surprise that Feng Mian looked to his childhood in a mountain village in Guangdong as an anchor in a chaotic world. One of his works, Bo Lei Inspecting the Horses, leads Bonham's fine Chinese painting sale in Hong Kong on the 3rd of April and is a very rare survivor from the 1950s. According to Bonham's Chinese art specialist, Iris Miao, Feng Mian later recreated many of his destroyed works, but only one other painting on this theme can be dated to the period. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, John Richardson, the art historian and the author of the magisterial biography A Life of Picasso, died last week in New York. He was 95. Richardson lived an extraordinary life, always among artists, from his early years in London, when he first met Francis Bacon and Lucian Freud, to the years he shared in the south of France with his then-partner, the Cubist scholar Douglas Cooper, where he got to know Picasso, Jean Cocteau and others, to his time in New York, where he ran Christie's in the 1960s and, among many other art world luminaries, got to know Andy Warhol. Richardson organised numerous important exhibitions, including several scholarly shows for the Gagosian Gallery in recent years, and wrote many significant books. But A Life of Picasso was his greatest achievement. Geis van Hensbergen, the author of the book Guernica, the biography of a 20th century icon, worked with Richardson on the as-yet-unpublished fourth volume of A Life of Picasso, and he joins me on the line now. Geis, to begin with, as a Picasso scholar, can you assess John Richardson's achievement? Well, I think, first of all, I mean, we've, we've got to put him in context and say that, you know, he's not a kind of hidebound theorist or an art historian. I mean, he always 
was much more than that. Uh, biographer, collector, dealer, exhibition designer, gosh, interior designer, enfant terrible. <laughs> and um, I think it was really an extremely personal relationship with Picasso and that whole world, which really kicked off the whole project. So what we get from John that obviously you, we don't get from other people is is that very, very personal um, response. And also, I, kind of, I say lifelong, but I mean for the last 30 years, a total kind of devotion to Picasso, uh, which, was, which was kind of extraordinary to watch uh, him kind of going literally year by year through and trying to understand what every picture meant and trying to kind of link it to life. That's right, because he, I guess his introduction to Picasso in earnest came through Douglas Cooper, did it? I mean, it, it, no, he, he, his partner during the 50s. Yeah, I mean, he'd, he'd, he'd come across Picasso when he was at school at Stone, and um, he'd got an art teacher there who'd, who'd been influential kind of as a very young man. Uh, but it was really... Douglas Cooper, and then obviously meeting Pablo in 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 the south of France, and uh, you know Picasso living very close to them, or certainly kind of halfway on the way to the ball rings of Arles and, and, and Nîmes, and you know calling in and them going over to see him in his various studios. Uh, do you know at what point John realised that he was embarking on a long project to capture uh, Picasso's life? I'm I'm not sure what John thought he was doing at the beginning, in the sense of, did he think he was going to write a life of Picasso which would be a little bit deeper than Roland Penrose's, uh, a little bit more detailed, um, that he could have thought that it was going to take up the rest of his, you know, the next 30 years. Um, I, I don't think that... He could ever have imagined that, and, and you know how much was still to find. That's it, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it's unbelievably exhaustive. It's, the amazing thing to me about the life of Picasso is not just that exhaustiveness, but the amazing pace that he achieves. It's utterly readable, and you know there are very many hundred pages, and yet, and yet the pace never slackens, does it? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's where 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 John wins over many an art historian is. Uh, you don't feel that he's that theory is getting in the way, and I mean, he absolutely loved the writing process. I mean, you know, once once he was sitting there writing, and and um, he would be kind of away in another world for two hours, totally focused. And he just loved the edit and the re-edit and the re-edit and the re-edit. Um, you know, he was a craftsman. Yeah, that very much comes across at the text. But then, of course, also this extraordinary knowledge of every image and interpretation of every image, painstakingly going through them all and pulling out their symbolism, and their, but also their formal capacity. He was, he was great at writing about drawing and painting as much as he was about the subject matter, wasn't he? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, he was a, he was kind of a Monke artist himself, anyway. Uh, and equally, I mean, his, his sensitivity to to interiors. And we've got to remember that Picasso is a lot of his work is is about interiors, and is about people in spaces. And I think that was also something which comes to 
to to John, and of course he was he was uh, you know when he could uh, he was an incredible reader. I mean, in the last few years, obviously with you know with problems with his eyesight, but even then, I mean, it was fascinating to watch when you put a picture in front of him and said, "Look, John, what 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 is that? What why what's going on here?" And he would you know defeat the kind of macular degeneration or whatever it was uh you know wet macular or dry macular when one in one eye and one in the other and he would just focus on it and getting closer and closer and it would just suddenly kind of uh you know kind of illuminate for him and and he'd start talking about it when when the first volume of a life of picasso was first published i think john was already in his late 60s so there was always a sense about the project that there was a race against time i mean thankfully he did live to a very great age and the most recent volume three takes us up to the early 1930s you've been working you've been working with him on volume four which therefore must include guernica and i presume that's why you're involved in the project is that right that was why I, I was involved in the project. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's uh, you know, kind of. There's Michael Carey is now working with him, or was working with him uh, in New York, and um, I kind of uh, retired from the project or, or pulled out of it um, because I think probably also my work had been done in a way. Uh, you know, that my expertise is Guernica and the Spanish Civil War, and also. Picasso as a Spaniard, and uh, clearly coming into the Second World War is 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 a kind of different field of research. When you say it's a different field of research, what do you mean that that, that, that he became a kind of um, obviously he was de- he was deeply involved with communism around that time, and he became very much a sort of an international figure for for uh, the communist movement, but also a kind of um, uh, an international figure for all of painters well, that's, to some degree. <laughs> that's really very much after the war because because actually during the war he kind of almost disappears to the point that when some of the early American GIs came to visit him or whatever, they they actually thought he was dead because uh, Franco kind of, you know, kind of uh, with the Axis powers or whatever had kind of lent pretty heavily to to, to kind of outlaw exhibiting Picasso during the war. And, you know, his life in Paris was pretty clandestine. Uh, people knew where he lived if close friends. He risked a lot by, you know, having visitors who were very much involved in the in the underground and the Mackie and the resistance. And, you know, working on working on paintings that that uh, you know later on we would have would of course see as as very much about the war. But as he said, you know, everything had the war in it. But I never specifically kind of painted battle scenes that he would do afterwards with his paintings on Korea. But um, during the war, really, he was. He, it, I mean, I think that's what's fascinating is that there is a whole world still of the underground art scene in Paris to be dealt with there. Can you shed some light on your discussions with John about Guernica? Because obviously you've invested a huge amount of your life into that painting and in Guernica, the biography. And I wonder, was it possible to learn more about it? Yes, absolutely. There was, I mean, there there were kind of moments where where it's asking the right question. I mean, John had this kind of mantra, which was ducks in a row, ducks in a row, ducks in a row. Make sure you've got everything to the right date. Make sure you've got everything... And 
there was, you know, there was one I can remember the moment as if it was yesterday. I'd, I'd just gone down to to Strand Books down, uh, you know, just down the road from his apartment on Fifth Avenue, found a Picasso book, and which neither of us had actually seen before, uh, because it was a kind of coffee table-ish uh, book. And we were looking through it, and I saw this painting, which I'd never seen before. I showed him he'd never seen it before. And it was a big painting, and it just had the letters 29th December on it. And I thought, you know, when Picasso did something like that, he always, it was a hint. It, you need to be tracked down. And tracking that down, we found a massive kind of source material, which, which John then published and we'd worked on for, for a long time, on, you know, a possible, another possible source for for Guernica, uh, which was published in the in the New York Review of Books a couple of years back, and so yeah, I mean it was you know him pushing me and saying well, you know Picasso obviously meant something about this. Let's try and find out. And where is this painting? We found out it's actually in the Picasso Museum in Paris. It's now since been put on show, but it was you know kind of hidden away because it was thought of as a kind of sub kind of fairly interesting interior but but once you related it to Goya and uh, the sleep of reason and I think that was where John and I worked together very well which was my kind of knowledge and obsession with Spanish art and Spanishness uh, and John kind of pushing me you know like a lawyer does at question time uh, you know in the courts or whatever is forcing you to think and rethink I'm, I'm intrigued by that, that that whole balance of Picasso the Spaniard and Picasso the man who lived outside of Spain for so much of his life. Um, and John's very good on that whole early period of in, in Spain, isn't he? He talks about the mirada fuerte, the, this the strong look, this sort of um, uh, possessive look that Picasso has. He also is, really establishes this idea of Picasso as a deeply superstitious figure and a figure obsessed with myth. It, it, does that tally with your view of Picasso? I mean, it's a, it's a very dramatic story, a very dramatic telling that John gives it. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely true. I think we must not forget at all the, the kind of input from Marilyn McCulley uh, in those first two volumes, which was, you know, massive input and her knowledge as well of Barcelona and... I think, you know, the, the, the Picassian uh, kind of take on life and the superstition, whatever, I think that is, I mean, that is so Spanish. And also the kind of the power of imagery in Spain with the whole kind of religious connotations, but also the idea of image making being uh, something almost like kind of totemic and, and uh, has its art has has powers. Uh, where you know we tend to look at them things like just as pictures or illustrations, but for Spanish people they do there's a kind of mysticism and a, and a depth to to the meaning of art. That's right. I mean, um, one of the great regrets, I guess, of John dying now is that is that he won't get as far as we know to unless he's got a lot of stashed material to the late period which is of course such a fascinating period not least because it's the period where Douglas Cooper and Picasso fell out and John was there to witness all this but um it, did he give you any sense that there was there was there was material he'd written which did cover that period and that might find a way to be published in the future 
I mean, I, th- I think there, there will be a lot of work, and I'm sure his publishers are, uh, are very aware uh, that, you know, John John kept notes and had, had has you know kind of a, a, an archive, and you know, and, and equally has kind of um, you know during that period. I mean, I sat down with him one one day. Uh, an entire day going through his smites and little, you know, there's little diaries for a whole decade. And sometimes he just put in, in, in brief who he was meeting or et cetera, on which day. And I think those things are going to become very important in, in analyzing also, you know, how much of John comes into the book. Right. Yes, exactly. So in a way, he's because of this extraordinary archive, it does give scope for other scholars to pick up the mantle to a certain degree, if not in the same gargantuan project, but in, in smaller projects, but, but nonetheless vital projects to understand that later period. Yeah, no, no, no. I think, I think, I think there will be, the, you know, when, when the archive, uh, wherever it's going, uh, when, when all that is sorted out, Later on in the day, I think that will become a valuable uh, research uh, resource for people on Picasso. Certainly will be. So, guys, uh, now that John has passed away, uh, we are waiting in anticipation for Volume Four of A Life of Picasso. Do you have any sense of when it might see the light of day? No, but I did, I did read somewhere that it was expected uh, by the end of the year. I'm sure that I'm sure that that is possible. It's it's how far it gets to, of course. That's it. That's the big question, isn't it? But thank you guys for talking to us in the meantime, and we really look forward to reading it when it does come out. Yep, fantastic. Thank you. John Richardson's new book, At Home, where he recalled the various places he's lived and the eclectic art collection he gathered in them, is published by Rizzoli USA on the 26th of March. It costs $65. You can still get the first three volumes of A Life of Picasso, published by Penguin Random House, and you can find Geis van Hensbergen's wonderful Guernica, the biography of a 20th century icon, at bloomsbury.com. Also there, you can find his book, The Sagrada Familia, Gaudi's Heaven on Earth. And that's it for this week. Do subscribe if you haven't already, and if you're enjoying the podcast, please give us a rating or review on iTunes as it helps others to find us. You can follow us and tell us what you think on Twitter, at Tan Audio, and you can find The Art Newspaper on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to read more from The Art Newspaper, please subscribe to our free daily newsletter. It contains a roundup of the stories published on our website, previews of exhibition openings and live reports from auctions, art fairs and biannuals, including the forthcoming Venice Biennale. You can subscribe at theartnewspaper.com and look for the newsletter link at the top right of the page. The producers of the Art Newspaper podcast are Julia Mahowska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David is also the editor. Thanks to David Bailey and to Geis, and thank you for listening. See you next week. The Art Newspaper podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. <laughs>